Please pray with me. Father, as we reflect on your word, we ask that you would send your spirit to give us understanding. We ask that you would send your spirit to empower us to live it out. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you know that four years ago, I moved to Pittsburgh. As I was getting ready to move to Pittsburgh, I have this friend. My friend's a professor at one of the top-rated business schools in the country, in the grad program. And when she heard I was moving to Pittsburgh, she went to her office, and she sat down at her computer, and she typed up a list for me of all her single female alumni who live in Pennsylvania. There was a little paragraph about each one and the high-powered jobs they had and the positions and contact information. And she sent this to me with a note that said, Josh, if you want to meet any of these young women in the great state of Pennsylvania, you let me know. How great is that? That has got to be one of the best gifts I've ever been given. I think I actually, after a few weeks, tossed the list out. But I loved my friend's enthusiasm. Clearly, she cared about me and thought it would be a good thing if I got married. You know that we're continuing our sermon series, 10 Tough Questions, from questions people in the congregation submitted this summer. Here are the questions we're going to address today. Is marriage God's ideal for Christians? Are married people wiser than non-married people? Are they more mature? And how should married Christians and single Christians relate to each other? That's what we're going to address. You may know that Ascension, we have a lot of single people. 43% of Ascension adults age 21 and older are single. If we take an overview of what the Bible says about marriage and just observe it and try not to add too much interpretation to it, this is what we would find. We would see that marriage is for men and women to help each other physically, spiritually, and emotionally. We would see that marriage is used as a metaphor for the relationship that God has with his people. He is the groom, we are the bride. We would also see that some people are so kind of live a fulfilling life, enough life on their own, they're strong enough, that it's good for them to remain single. They can devote more time and energy to seeking the kingdom. We think of Mother Teresa, of the late John Stott. But we also see in the New Testament that there are other people whose, whose sex drives are just so energetic that it's important that they do get married to channel that energy in the right direction. And we also see that marriage is a temporary institution. It won't exist in heaven. So with all that the Bible says about marriage, is marriage the ideal for Christians? The Bible's answer is, it depends. It depends on the person, and it depends on what kind of marriage you have. Simply getting married, having a wedding is not what God wants for anyone. He doesn't simply want that. We know that a wedding isn't the goal, 
a high-quality marriage is the goal. But at the same time, it's not the goal for all people. Jesus clearly says, if you can remain single, do it. But he also says, there are other groups of people. Paul, in the New Testament, says, hey, if you, if you want to get married, that's okay too. Go for it. And God seems to say there's sometimes where he makes it very clear what he wants us to do. And other times he seems to say, it's up to you. Now we know that there are people here who are single who want to get married, but have not yet. We also know there are some single people here who aren't interested in marriage. We know there are folks here who have great, vibrant, high-quality marriages. And then we also know there are folks in marriages here who are in a profoundly tough place. They see the ideal, but looking at the ideal is painful. No matter which group we fall into today, and given that God's ideal varies from person to person, how do we know what God wants for our lives? How do we know what God wants for the lives of our friends? Please look at Jeremiah 29 with me. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God tells us, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, to give you a future with hope. Other translations of that verse read, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not harm you. That verse is often quoted to comfort and encourage people when they're going through a time of transition or uncertainty. When we hear that verse quoted, we often think that God has a specific plan for Josh's life, for Tizzy's life, for each of our lives. And curiously, when we think and ponder on what that plan is, it often looks a lot like the American dream. When we hear that verse, it's, it's easy to think, yes, I know the, God, the plans God has for me. A nice family, and a nice house, and a nice car, and a nice life. God has plans for us, but are, those, are his plans those plans, or are his plans something else? When we read the entire chapter of Jeremiah 29, and not just this one verse, we see what's going on. At this point, most Israelis had been taken as prisoners of war to Babylon. They were in a foreign land, forced to be there. All of a sudden, they were surrounded by different food, different languages, different customs, different gods. And the question everyone was asking is, what are we to make of this? What does this mean? Has God abandoned us? If we keep on living our lives like normal... Will that be betraying God? Maybe we should try and escape, or maybe we should try and rebel. On blogs and cable news and talk radio, all kinds of opinion were flying about. <laughs> Into the midst of that controversy, God sends this message to the exiles from Jeremiah. And God tells them, make your homes in Babylon. Live, flourish, Seek to be a blessing to the city. And God says, after 70 years, I'm going to take you back and restore you to the land I gave you, the promised land. 
And then that's when in verse 7, God through Jeremiah says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. As I mentioned before, when we hear that last verse, when we hear verse 11, it's tempting to think that God has a special plan for Stacy and for Jim and, and, and for all of us. And that may be the case. That may very well be the case. But in the context of this passage, God isn't speaking to us as individuals. He's saying, I have a plan for you, my people, as a group. At this point, you may be wondering, okay, so what does this have to do about marriage? Whenever we're talking about what God desires for our lives, we need to think of it in multiple levels. There's the overarching plan God has for all our lives, for everyone. He wants us to love him with all we, all we have, with all our might. He wants us to love our neighbors, to serve the poor. That's part of his overarching, non-negotiable plan. That is very clear. There's a second layer of things that God wants for us. Important things, but not as important as that overarching layer. And I'm going to label these things situational plans God has for us. Does God want me to become a missionary? Does God want me to get married or stay single? Sometimes he makes the answers to these situational plans obvious. And other times he seems to say, it's up to you. You decide. When we read the New Testament, we see Jesus spending much more time stressing how and that we love God and how and that we love our neighbor than whether or not we get married. And sometimes we get hung up on these secondary issues, though, so much so that we forget about the primary one. I think God wanted me to become a priest. I believe he called me to do that. But I also believe that he cares much more about how I treat the poor than whether or not I'm a priest. He would much rather that I love and serve the poor well and never became a priest than that I be a priest and ignore the poor. As we read the Bible, it's crystal clear. There are many things that God cares much more about than whether or not I become a priest, whether or not you or I get married, And when we read Jeremiah 29, 11, too individualistically, there's two dangers for us. The first is that we'll get thinking about God's plans and we'll think that they're so mysterious and we'll pray and seek to discern what it is that God wants exactly for me. And we'll get so caught up in that that it becomes a distraction and we forget about all the other overarching things that are much more important to him. That's one danger. Because God made it very clear to the exiles in Babylon what his plan was. It wasn't something mysterious. He said, live here, flourish. At the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. In the same way, God makes his plan pretty clear to us. Serve the poor. Love your neighbor. Love me with all your might. God does not make these plans for our lives a mystery. The second danger I see in interpreting this verse too individualistically is that 
we run, run, excuse me, we run the risk of placing ourselves at the center of the story. Up to the 1500s, scientists believed that the Earth was the center of the solar system. That's how they formulated everything. And then in the 1540s, Copernicus comes along and sets forward a new hypothesis, which eventually became a theory and now is, is standard belief that actually the sun is the center of the solar system. It took a long time, more than 100 years, for the Copernican Revolution to take a hold. But there are many scientists today who still believe that discovery was the most fundamental discovery of science to date. One of the most important things for our souls is to have a Copernican revolution. We all are so tempted to put ourselves at the center of the story. And God does love us very, very much. But the story isn't about us. The Westminster Catechism summarizes the Bible's teaching on this when it says, the chief end of humans is to glorify God. Sometimes we get so wrapped up into wondering about what the variables are of our lives, these things of secondary importance, that we place ourselves at the center of the solar system. Viktor Frankl was a man who many decades ago understood how important it is for our souls to have a Copernican revolution. He grew up in Austria, and like us, he imagined that he would live a certain kind of life. But when World War II broke out, that was all thrown out the window, he was taken to a concentration camp, and everything changed. Reflecting on his time, he said this, this is not the life I would have chosen, but this is what life put in front of me. He went on to say, the important question in life isn't, what do I want out of life, but what does life want from me? For Viktor Frankl, the purpose of life wasn't saying, what is the purpose of my life, but what is the purpose that has been assigned to me? And as we reflect on his words, we hear echoes of Jesus' words saying the purpose of life isn't to grab hold of it for yourself, it's to give it away. We've looked at this passage from Jeremiah. We've taken a catalog of what the Bible says about marriage. Back to our first question. Is marriage the Christian ideal? From everything I see in the Bible, the answer is, it depends. But even though that depends... There are definitely other plans God has for our lives he makes much clearer that are much more important to him. That may be a revolutionary thought for us. Marriage is not held in the same esteem it once was in American culture. And yet, marriage and family are still strongly associated with stability, with maturity, moral rectitude, with someone who can be trusted and respected. That's the view many Christians have as well. And ascension is a great place. Ascension is really good about this stuff. But there's been a couple times, not many, but a few, where I've been in a conversation with groups of people and they have not so subtly suggested that when I get married, 
And when I have kids, oh boy, Josh, just wait. You're going to be so much more mature. You're going to have so much more wisdom, know so much more about the world. And it's usually said through laughs. Oh, Josh, when he has kids, he'll understand. Now, I know they don't mean any harm by it. And I can shrug it off. But it does reveal what they believe. They believe people who are married and have children are wiser people. I don't think those are helpful thoughts for single people. But I also don't think they're helpful thoughts for married people. A more helpful stance for all of us is to recognize the limits of our wisdom and understanding. Proverbs 26.12 says, Do you see someone who's wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for such a person. You have this sense that wisdom is such a rare, rarely discovered, valuable thing that with its discovery also comes great humility. There's an an author named David Brooks, and he's been doing a lot of research lately, and he has assembled mountains of data and studies and evidence that he believes shows how overconfident Americans are. Here's a couple samples. He notes that Americans rank 36th in the world in math performance. But we rank number one in thinking we're really good at math. (laughs) South Korea thinks they're the worst. They're actually the best. He notes that Time Magazine asked readers, are you in the top 1% of American income earners? 19% said yes. 96% of American college professors rated themselves as above average teachers. We have a lot of professors, no offense. It was just one of the more striking ones. And then he uncovered the study where researchers went to executives in various fields, and they asked executives questions based on their field of expertise. They had them take this test, and then they graded those questions, those tests, and they asked the executives, how confident are you that you got those answers correctly? There were numbers of industries where things diverged wildly. The researchers found that the most overconfident executives were from the computer field. When asked, how many of the questions do you think you got correct, they thought they scored a 95% on the test. They got 20% of the answers correct. Now that's startling and it's kind of humorous and we think, oh man, those computer people, they're so arrogant and, and overconfident. But what if you and I, not other people, what if you and I are too overconfident in how wise we think we are and how much we think we know and how many of the mysteries of life we understand? For those of you who we would consider in the best case situation on this topic, who are married, been married a long time, have a healthy, vibrant, life-giving, missional marriage. Can you really say that that has been accomplished based solely on your wisdom and your expertise, and that if you were to start all over again from scratch, that you would be able to replicate that? We're all 
amazing recipients of God's mercy. But many times we receive that mercy and we think, oh, it's because I'm so good. We attribute his mercy to our abilities. I think as we seek to live together as a community, as a diverse community of married, non-married, people with kids, people without kids, as we seek to do that well and love each other, I think there are some practical things we can do to help each other. One is to recognize the limits of our wisdom, our ability to explain the mysteries of life. Another is to encourage each other to live out our common vision, our overarching vision. Because I don't think God cares how good our marriage is or how great our bachelorhood is if we're not doing the basic things, if we're not serving the poor, if we're not loving our neighbors. And one other thing we can do is to help each other see one another as human beings and to not label each other just as married, unmarried, kids, no kids, to not center our life together around our marital and family status. Because stereotypes only go so far. There are many single people in this congregation who would love it if you set them up on a blind date. But then there are others who wouldn't be as enthused about that or who may not want to get married. There may be moms in our congregation who, when they become stay-at-home moms, actually continue having other interests outside the home, having interests that don't revolve around their kids, and may once in a while want to have conversations that don't relate to their family. I guess that's a few amens. <laughs> and we can encourage our single friends, but not treat singleness as a disease or a mark or blemish on our soul or character. And all of us can choose not to look down on married people whose marriages, in our estimation, may not be ideal. Instead, we can recognize the limits of our knowledge, pray for our brothers and sisters, and remind ourselves that were it not for God's grace, we could be right there too. Here's the last thing I want to say. I cannot explain why so many single Christians who want to be married, can't find the right person. I can't explain that. I doubt any of us can. If you think you can, you should go on the lecture circuit because the world is, is thinking about these things, mulling them over, and you'll make a great amount of money. We could ponder cultural shifts, societal factors, personal variables. We could do all that. But none of that would bring answers that satisfy our soul. But we can tell each other this. There are some things more important than being married. Not least of which is knowing God and being known by him. Jeremiah is in the midst of all this destruction and upheaval and things not going the way they wanted to. And in the midst of that, he writes this in Lamentations. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. It's always before my eyes. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, 
and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. He knew life was still worth living because he had access to the most important thing in the world. God and God's mercy. And God had a plan for his people. It may not have been the plan they had in mind, but it was a plan to prosper them with a hope and a future. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge before you that your wisdom and knowledge and understanding is so much greater than ours. We ask that be we single or married, that whether we're content or discontent with our current station in life, we ask that you would pour out your grace on us to navigate these mysteries of life. We ask that you would pour out your mercy upon us so that we don't get so, so hung up on, on these, these questions and so that we don't place ourselves at the center of the story. But we need your grace and mercy to have a, a revolution in our souls where you are placed at the center, to love you with all our strength, to love our neighbors well, to love the poor. We need your help. We ask that you would give us grace to navigate these mysteries with grace, to love each other, and to love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.